was thinking of um, a way that we might end the sitting that would somehow be a communal prayer or a communal dedication for this day. And I actually couldn't think of anything better than the uh, precepts. Lay precepts that lay people take that are the guidelines for cultivating um, a clear and compassionate heart. So I thought um, I might say a half a sentence and you say it after me and then I'll say the next half. And you say it after me so we can take these precepts together in this particular week and in this particular last week of this calendar year. Aware of the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. I undertake the training precept. I undertake the training precept to abstain from harming living creatures. To abstain from harming living creatures. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. I undertake the training precept. I undertake the training precept to abstain from taking anything that isn't freely given me. To abstain from taking anything that is not freely given me. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. I undertake the training precept. I undertake the training precept. To abstain from speech that exploits or abuses. To abstain from speech that exploits or abuses. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. I undertake the training precept. I undertake the training precept to abstain from using my sexuality in ways that are exploitive or abusive. To abstain from using my sexuality in ways that are exploitive or abusive. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. Understanding the suffering in the world that comes from ignorance and confusion. I undertake the training precept. I undertake the training precept. To abstain from intoxicating my mind with anything that confuses it and leads to heedlessness. To abstain from intoxicating my mind with anything that confuses it and leads to heedlessness. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be cared for in their body and in their mind. May all beings be cared for in their body and in their mind. May there be an end to suffering. May there be an end to suffering. So who has never been here before on a Wednesday morning?
quite a lot of people. Normally, I like to know your names just in the beginning. Today, I think because it's the last Wednesday of the year, we'll all say our names at the end. So, welcome. I hope you come again. I really, as much, I have things to say and things to talk about, but I as much want to talk with you as to you and have you talk to each other. Are you as overwhelmed as I am this week? Is this a complicated week? You know, I'll tell you some of the things that keep going through my mind. They're like one-line things that shaped my understanding years and years ago. And talking about human beings. In the first day of graduate school, uh, the first teacher that I had in the first class that I took, which was an Eastern religions class, actually, said, uh, talking about uh, uh, beings, and uh, the beings that inhabit this earth, said uh, the thing that's different from human beings than other animals is they laugh and they cry and they bury their dead. And I thought about that as uh, just as an organizing thing to think about. I know I've said it here a lot. It touched me a lot. The person who said it to me became a lifelong friend of mine. So I like to say that because it reminds me of her. And, you know, sometimes I play a little bit about it and I say, you know, I don't know that cats and dogs don't talk to each other or that they don't share news bulletins as they go by or that they don't appreciate this year's baby more than last year's or that they don't think that their own baby or their sister's baby is the cutest baby in the whole world and that maybe they have feelings like human beings. I just in the last few weeks read a, a long retrospective in um, the New Yorker magazine on, on Peanuts, Charles Schultz. Did anybody read it? It was really wonderful. Did you read it? It was great, wasn't it? And the sense of the, of the reviewer was the fact that it became so immediately popular and enduringly popular for so long with very uncomplicated drawings. You know, they were essentially balloon heads on little bodies with a few lines for faces, is that, uh, with no adults ever, is that Linus and Charlie Brown and Lucy and Snoopy, the dog, and Woodstock, the canary, all thought and felt like people, like adult people. And that what people really um, uh, resonated to in the cartoons is they had all the feelings of disappointment or dismay or embarrassment or humiliation, the whole palette of feelings that human beings have, which mostly we don't attribute to canaries and dogs at all, and not to young children either. But I think it was an affirmation. I think the fact that people loved it for so long, it's an affirmation of the fact that human beings have an enormous palette of feelings you know, we're different. We don't live only by instinct. You know, other animals get born. Mm. My friend Guy Armstrong likes to bring a certain cartoon with him to uh, retreats that we teach together. And uh, the cartoon has several boxes in it. And in the first one, um, it shows a uh, uh, a uh, oh, an animal that. Uh, a sea animal uh, in its one of its evolutionary stages of becoming a land animal. So you see a sea animal crawling out of the sea, and you see a thought bubble over its head, and in the thought bubble it says, eat, survive, procreate. And then you see uh, some uh, form of land animal milling around and thinking, eat, survive, procreate. And then you see uh, a monkey swinging through trees. The monkey is thinking, eat, survive, procreate. And then you see a person sitting on a rock, the seashore, looking up. 
and thinking, what's it all about? (laughs) (laughs) So it takes for granted that the eat, survive, procreate runs through the brainstem and all the instinctive channels of all the other forms of beings. But you get up to a certain point and you wonder, what are we here for and how come I have feelings? How come? I think this is the most, I myself think it's the most amazing thing that we have affective bonds that matter. We like some people more than other people. We fall in love with some people. I find that the most amazing human characteristic. We meet hundreds of people in our lives. The people who are looking to meet a partner through an ad in the paper will tell you this story all the time. You can write in the paper exactly what what's true about you, 68-year-old <laughs> short woman uh, interested in uh, foreign films, classical music, and bike riding is looking for da 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 And you could meet a hundred people who are interested in that kind of a woman who have the kind of characteristics that that kind of woman thinks she's interested in. And they might none of them turn you on. Might be really nice people, but it's amazing to me that some people you meet and all of a sudden you feel, ta-da, and they might not even have the characteristics that you put in your ad even. You know, it's amazing that there's such mystery about being a human being in the world and that we have affection for people that touches us so deeply that there's nothing that's more important to us in our lives than affection for those people. On um, Sunday, Sunday was the day of the tsunami. On Sunday night, uh, my husband called his cousin in Canada uh, on just to say hello. Uh, we call frequently. We're quite close with them. The cousins in Canada have a son in uh, Australia going to veterinary school. The son in Australia in veterinary school was in Phuket on a holiday with his girlfriend. This has a good end, this story. <laughs> but their story was they got up, they heard the news about what happened from the tsunami. They called Yuri's cell phone and no one answered. They, and they didn't know where he was because they knew he was in Phuket. They called, uh, they couldn't get an answer on the cell phone. They called the State Department in Ottawa. was closed. They couldn't get anyone on the telephone. Finally, after three hours of hysterical, uh, Tanya said she did not take a single breath in the whole three hours. She must have, <laughs> she must have taken a breath, but I, I take that as a... She said after three hours, they called Qantas, the airline that he was supposed to be flying home whenever it was flying home on. They called Qantas and said, we need to know if uh, Yuri Burstein is on a flight from Bangkok to... Uh, Sydney. They said, we never give out uh, the names of the people on an airplane. They said, listen, Yuri Burstein is our son, and he just flew out of Thailand. They said, okay, we're looking it up for you. I love this story, that Qantas Airlines, and we never give out. They say, it's my son, and he's flying out of Thailand. They come back on, they say, Yuri Burstein is flying with a companion with him, and he's in the air en route to Sydney. So I hear this, uh, you know, eight hours after the event. Tanya is still completely undone by it. And then we have a long conversation about all the other people who didn't get out six hours before. He had been on the beach, by the way, six hours before the wave and left for Bangkok. So that everybody spent the day saying the fundamental, not only Buddhist truth, 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 you never know. You just never know. You never know anything. And that's the piece that so disarms me. I was driving down from Healdsburg yesterday. There was a huge, there were huge rains yesterday. As I came by Santa Rosa, there was one of those big pileups of car accidents that have a lot of life support ambulances there and too many police there and too many cars lined up and personnel so that you know something really not good happened there. 
wasn't a tsunami, it was just an afternoon rain with people probably otherwise in the best of health. I keep thinking to myself, there must be some critical number at which enough people will get it that this whole experience of life is so fragile, so completely beyond our conscious control that we would use every moment of it so carefully. So this is the last paragraph of Monday's New York Times um, editorial. You know, people tell the stories, you know, I just got out before, I had a feeling. Well, probably a lot of people had a feeling and didn't. There were a lot of stories yesterday about people, you probably saw them, who said I was sitting on the beach and all of a sudden it didn't look right. The water was running out too fast. Somebody told me a story about somebody who they heard who, who was swimming with his partner in the water. And the partner said, this water doesn't feel right. And they got out. You know, but you gotta, this, this water doesn't feel right. You know, and... Uh, but you don't expect that, you know. But they got out. It's instinctive in humans to search for the meaning of a great event like this. Once shock and grief have begun to subside, there will be plenty of meanings to find in the way that human beings reacted. As this disaster struck and in its aftermath, as the relief effort begins, but except for our obligations to help the victims in any way we can, the underlying story of this tragedy is the overpowering amoral mechanisms of the Earth's surface, the movement of the plates that grind and shift and slide against each other with profound indifference to anything but the pressures that drive them. When those forces punctuate human history, they do so tragically. They demonstrate, geologically speaking, how ephemeral our presence is. There are two words in that. First, I thought that was a lovely thing for the New York Times to write. But there are two words in there that I think are really important. That the mechanics of the Earth's surface are amoral. Those geological plates that shifted didn't do it with ill will. They just shifted. That's what geological plates do. But human beings don't need to be amoral. The difference between human beings and geological plates is important. Geological plates just do what they do when the pressure on one is a certain amount, it pushes the pressure on the other, and something happens. Human beings, when there are pressures in them, get to choose. They really do. Remember all the things we said to children when they, uh, um, when children are two and three years old and they throw themselves down on the floor and click and scream, you say, put it together, stand up on your feet, tell me what you want, and we'll talk about it. That, and by and large, they do. And we learn that in a world, we pull it together and we talk about it. Most of us learn that. Amoral mechanics of the Earth's surface, the movement of plates that grind and shift and slide against each other with profound indifference to anything but the pressures that drive them. That's it, profound indifference to anything but the pressures that drive them. The other person's needs are not part of the inner mechanics of tectonic plates. Profound indifference. You know, Indifference is the other word I wanted to talk about. Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Do you know that? that, Do you know the word near enemy? Is that a new word? Near enemy? Do you know it? Would you like to know it? Okay. This is what this is what the Buddha taught. Taught that there are certain uh, valuable mind states that sometimes. There are certain valuable mind states. Valuable mind state of um, loving is a valuable mind state. 
compassion is a valuable mind state. Um, appreciative joy, delight in other people's good fortune. It's a very freeing mind state. It just doubles your own pleasure. You know? The, the Dalai Lama said it's wonderful to have appreciative joy because your chances of being happy are multiplied enormously. <laughs> and if you have to wait for your own joy, it's few and far between. But so 8 billion people, 6 billion people on this planet and a lot of other kinds of beings. If you have appreciative joy, you have so many opportunities to experience joy and participate in it. And the fourth of those salubrious mind states is equanimity. The main reason for equanimity being thought of as such a good mind state to have is that it's a, equanimity means that there's a certain amount of clarity in the mind so you can really see clearly. You don't get confused. You don't caught, get caught in some ignorant view. You don't get caught in a habit that isn't helpful. You can really see clearly. Equanimity does not mean tranquility. It doesn't mean quietude. Actually, equanimity means a mind state big enough to hold everything in it and still see clearly what's a wise way to respond now. Equanimity is said to have been the mind state that the Buddha had on the night of his own enlightenment when all the distracting um, taunts and temptations and threats of Mara, the evil one, were meant to distract him from his goal of clearly understanding the cause and the end of suffering. He sat down with great equanimity. Poise is a great word for equanimity. Balance is another great word for equanimity. It means everything is there, but it's balanced, it's poised, you can see clearly. The heart is at ease, the mind is clear. It's different from indifference. <coughs> indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. That sometimes people say, well, whatever. You know, and whatever means I don't care too much about it. It's the difference between my teacher Ajahn Sumedho saying, I think out of a place of equanimity, I'm able to live in difficult times because I can say to myself, it's like this. I love that. I've been practicing that little hand motion because I think it's so, it's like this. It's like this. And that it's like this is an it's like this that's full of wisdom. It's like this because given the conditions, it couldn't be otherwise. And if I fight with it, I'll make it worse. It's like this. I'm, I'm, this is an incredible time in my life. One of my friends has pancreas cancer. One of my friends has ovarian cancer. Um, one of my friends has a child who's uh, terribly depressed and frighteningly so. And each of them are trying to deal with their situation the best that they can without being hysterical about it. They're trying to say, it's like this, it's awful. I'm doing the best I can. It's like this. And what they are all in their own ways trying to do is not making it worse by saying, why me, or poor me, or it shouldn't be happening to me. It is happening to me. It's like this. It's like this means this is what's going on. We look at the world now, we say, it's like this. What should we do? I'm thinking about that, and it's going to be the meditation that we're going to do at the end of the time. It's like this, what can we do? So sometimes when I go around and I teach that, that the equanimity meditation is it's like this, um, people tease me sometimes, they say, oh, that's like teenagers, whatever. And I say, well, no, it's not quite like teenagers, because the teenagers that say, when you say you can't take the car or you have to be home by midnight or whatever, and they say whatever, it's a little bit of a version in it, you know, it's not... <laughs> It's not completely an open-hearted whatever. <laughs> so, that's the near enemy. The near enemy to equanimity is indifference. Whatever means I'm, you know, I don't. It's not my stuff. It's very hard to stay balanced and look at the newspapers or look at the look at what's happening in the world, just to grok the amount of pain in the world. For me, there are two things that are operative. And I'm just going to tell you my two things, and then I'm going to ask you to talk to each other about it or talk to me about it. 
because this is a central issue. I'll tell it to you as a story a little bit. I, uh, uh, I talked to Jack on the phone last night about some other business, my friend Jack Cornfield. So we talked a little bit about the news. And I said, um, I'm glad tomorrow's Wednesday because when there are big things happening, I like to have my community there to sit with. It helps me to sit with my community. I said, I'm glad about it. And I said, I'm also a little afraid of it. He said, what are you afraid of? I said, I'm afraid because if I go and I tell the truth, I'm going to have to include how angry I am about the, the news yesterday, appropriately and wonderfully, is full of relief agencies all over the world bringing this much money and that much money and this much aid and that much aid and Oxfam and AmeriCare and wonderful agencies and Doctors Without Borders and the United States offered $35 million for a relief effort. Other people, it's wonderful. Everybody's heart is moved for the relief effort. I said, I can't stand it that every day $238 million is being spent in Iraq to continue that war of purposely killing people and purposely polluting the water, purposely ruining the infrastructure, purposely destroying a civilization. And no one was hysterical about that. And I said, I'm, I'm beside myself. I feel like I've gone mad. And uh, I don't want to take anything away from the wonderfulness of everyone sending blankets and sending money and sending aid. But how can we have a mind that says, let's send aid? I heard um, a, a clip on the radio yesterday, maybe on the news hour. Someone, maybe, maybe on BBC before it or somewhere, driving along in the car, where someone called from India. And he was in India, Indian accent. And he said, I don't want any aid from America. So the, the newscaster would say, well, America's sending aid to Madras or wherever that part of India, uh, Mumbai. And he said, I don't want any American aid. He said, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about uh, India getting aid from anyone who has murder as their day job. Oh. And I winced so badly. Oh. I was riding along in my car and I thought, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. I felt so badly about people in some other country thinking that about this is what America is having as a day job. And in a way, I, you know, I, I could see what he was saying. I, I, so I said to Jack, how am I going to hold it together? How am I going to get there and not cry or carry on or rant? And um, I had saved before the floods happened, before the, the uh, this is uh, Saturday's New York Times before the tidal wave. This is uh, the front cover of the New York Times. Uh, Sergeant Michael Posner as a at a ceremony yesterday in Mosul for two soldiers killed in Tuesday in the mess hall. So do you know how they do, they do uh, funerals in uh, war spots? They put, um, they put the person's helmet and they put his rifle and, uh, and his boots. And you walk by and you see empty boots and a rifle and a helmet on it. And the man coming by is on crutches because he was hurt in that blast. And it's, it, I don't know if I can read this without crying. Sergeant Posner, Sergeant Michael Posner was standing in the middle of a crowded dining hall at forward operating base Maraz, holding a cheeseburger and fries on a lunch tray and looking for his friends when a huge force blew him off his feet. Two paragraphs later, on, this is on Thursday. Tuesday, on Friday, Sergeant Posner, 34, from Farmingville, New York, was one of the hundreds of service members who went to the base's movie theater to honor two of the 14 American soldiers killed in the attack. In pairs, they, fil they filed past the now-familiar battlefield monument, the dead men's helmet and dog tags slung on their M-16s, propped up between their combat boots. 
The mourners touched their helmets, sob, bow their heads. Sergeant Posner clumped forward on crutches, his right leg broken. Facing the first helmet, he leaned to balance on his left leg, rapidly executed a clumsy but vigorous salute. He moved to the second helmet and saluted again. Then he leaned back into his crutches and made his way back down the aisle. Outside, he turned his back and his shoulders heaved as he sobbed. This is uh, yesterday morning's paper. It looks like a lot of people taking a nap outside a building, except for the woman who's sitting up and crying. They're all dead. Their children, most of the people who died were children and women and elderly. And I looked at them. I, I don't think I've ever seen dead babies. But, you know, they're lying in postures that look like sleeping babies. And nobody did this one purposely. And here, you know, look at this picture of this woman crying. And I, I, I tried, but I couldn't do it. I thought to myself, I tried to imagine that one of these is one of my grandbabies. And I can't let the thought into my mind. It won't hold it, you know. I even have the thought, what would my, might that feel like? And it's so abhorrent to the mind that you can't quite do it. I can do it that that's her grandbaby, but not mine, because the mind can't even hold it. It just won't do it. It doesn't go there. And this is an accident. I mean, they live on a planet where accidents going to happen. You know, volcanoes explode and ferries turn over in big gales and this is the largest natural disaster in recent history happened in more countries so nine countries i think affected but not purposely how we can not be touched by this as we are universally and not somehow be reconfirmed to never hurting anybody, not purposely. It seems to me that the lesson from it, how could it be other? This is a trivial story to tell almost, but I, uh, the first meditation retreat that I went to in 1977 with no instruction at all about what it was about or what was going on. I had no idea what I was getting into. I hated it. It was a, it was a, it was a, a torturous weekend in the South Bay. I didn't get the instructions. It was hot. I didn't know anybody there. There was nothing about it that was pleasant. I was miserable. I was there because my husband had gone on retreat and he thought it was a good thing and thought I should go. And I was stuck there without a car and I was waiting for him to come and get me on Sunday. I was going to read him a tremendous riot act about uh, what on earth have you gotten me into? Except two months after that, I was on a plane going to a 14-day retreat. So I think to myself, what? Something must have happened on that in that two days that was valuable. I have no recollection, really, except it was too hot, too crowded. I had a headache. I didn't know they didn't serve caffeine. I had a, a withdrawal <laughs> headache. It was a mess. Um, my body hurt. Everything was terrible. I think, on some level, I must have heard the message of the possibility of liberation, the possibility of freedom. I must have heard something that touched some chord in me that heard that. And the, the other piece that I remember more clearly is that it was in a private house that was being used as a meditation hall for 14 or 20 people. And on the dining room table, on the mantelpiece in the living room, there was a redwood burl, the kind that uh, you buy in a um, state park. 
where it says, sisters are friends forever, a home sweet home, or something. <laughs> this one, as I looked like it was bought in one of those shops, and, uh, and it said, um, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I remember I was doing my walking meditation back and forth in front of that little burrow, and I was thinking to myself, if that's what they teach here, then I belong here. Life is so difficult. That's really what the Buddha taught, that life is continually going to be difficult. We get stuck with all kinds of arrows of pain. That's not my child there. You know, my grandchild is home taking a nap, but it could have been. It could always be. How can we be anything but kind? If that happened to me with my grandchild, I would feel as terrible as this person feels with that grandchild. That piece of awareness that I think is the great gift of being a human being, the capacity for empathy, the capacity to imagine that other people feel like me, ought to be that piece that converts us all to peace. I thought I'd let you all talk, but I want to tell you one, the one thing that comes in my mind, and, and then I think this must be true in everybody's family. My, my husband's father was born in the Ukraine in um, 1905, and uh, so was a young boy at the time of the First World War and the Russian occupation of the Ukraine. And um, in the small town in which they lived, uh, the troops that came through that town did not kill townspeople. They, they just were continue, they fought soldiers, fought soldiers apparently. But in that war, they, they didn't kill the people who lived there. Matter of fact, they were bivouacked in the homes of the people who lived there. And, um, and so my father-in-law was telling me, I asked him one time about what the sleeping arrangements were in his house. They were peasants in the Ukraine. So they had, I think, maybe two rooms and five children. And he said he slept with his four brothers lying uh, this way in, in a bed, because four this way wouldn't fit, so they slept four this way in a bed. But uh, he said we also had the, the, uh, the German soldiers sleeping in the in the living room, in the other room of the house, on the floor, uh, and staying with us for some period of time. So I said, what did your mother think about the German soldiers sleeping on the floor of our living room? She said, oh, my mother was very nice to them. She said, they are somebody's children. So, you know, my, my father-in-law's mothers and unschooled, unlettered, unphilosophical, mother in the Ukraine. Why is it not a universal <coughs> response to say, these are somebody's children, I need to take care of them? What can I do in me, is what I end up thinking. I don't want to be mad at the government. I am, but I don't want to be. Um, <coughs> I'm trying not to act on that. I'm trying to know that I am mad know that I am dismayed, know that I am grieved in the extreme at the misinformation that I think is, has confused people's minds. And I want to put that down and look instead at what can I do. But I want to know how you're doing and what you're thinking about. What are you thinking about? Well, here's a question. Do you want to tell me individually or do you want to tell the person next to you first? I always think on a day like this it's good for everybody to get a chance to talk. What would you feel about talking to the person next to you for five minutes? Could you do that? Mm -hmm. Talk to one or two people next to you. One is best, two if there's a person left over, go.
an idea. <laughs> now don't go too far, don't go too far. It's just a little idea. It's just a little idea because I'm listening to I'm listening to three or four conversations, all of which are very exciting to me. Are they exciting to you? Yeah. I actually was going to do one more little talk, and then we'd all talk together. I was going to suggest uh, like five conversations here, like all these people over here who are all having good conversations, like make a little conversation group, and here a group, and here a group, and here a group, and here a group, and there a group, and there a group, seven groups. Just pull yourself, pull a few more people into your groups. Okay, go. Just, just five minutes. I heard that I heard from Jack that you hadn't heard from Sita, but that no, but did we know where she was? Franz was there, but he got out. So you want me to say something about that? Actually, Shelley is reminding me that one of the people who's one of the cooks here is in India, and we don't know where she is. We have not yet heard. Sita. We don't know. We don't know. May she be well. So the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, I think it's the right thing. Yeah. I do know the email from France. Why don't you tell about it? Yeah. Yeah, I did, but you get to tell. <laughs> this is Sandra Franco, who is our development director.
He ran up a tree. Franz Merkel. The Qigong. Franz of Qigong. Right up a tree. So the first thing I want to ask you, because my, my just to check out, my intuition is when there's a, something that we share communally, everybody should have a chance to be talking about it. And you think it's good to talk to everybody, isn't it? I, I think so. Not just me. Um, so good. I also um, wanted to use the rest of the time, because I keep thinking to myself, you remember before I told you uh, my, my uh, conundrum last night when I talked to Jack, I said, how am I going to go? I want to have some wise words. I want to say something that's consoling. I want to say things like tectonic plates are amoral. They just do that, you know. That, um, but the thing is, tectonic plates are amoral, and people have the possibility of being moral. And what are we doing here and there? And not only in Iraq, but you know, I can go away and here in the. Anyway, I had a long discussion with Jack about that. He said, "Go tell people exactly how you feel and see how it works. Let them talk about it." But and but. The thing that I am most clear about for myself that, that remains for me today as my work and as my contribution to this pained and suffering world is I am more than ever determined to be aware of the arising of ill will in me in any way that it might arise so that I might in any way take pleasure in anybody else's hurt and see what I can do about changing that. This practice is called the purification of the heart. I want a heart that cries at everybody's pain. I really want to cultivate that kind of heart that knows that pain is pain, and other people hurt just the way that I do. I'm going to save this cover of the New York Times forever, I think. Look at that mother, one grandmother, in her anguished face and those babies there. You know, I don't know her, and I don't know those babies, but it could be me. And I have to assume that she feels exactly like me. And I have to assume that every mother in Iraq feels exactly like me. And every mother everywhere feels exactly like me. And every father I heard on the phone yesterday, on the radio, I heard a devastating story that I thought was going to end good where the, uh, the uh, L.A. Times reporter was, uh, had flown to South India and uh, was recounting having interviewed uh, a survivor of the wave, a man who said this man's home, who was a fisherman, was 150 yards from the sea. He looked up. He saw the wave coming. He grabbed his three-year-old, clutched him to him, and uh, the huge wave came, carried him 300 yards further inland, just riding a wave like surfing, banging into trees and over cars. And he said he just clutched this child to him and sewage and kept trying to keep the two of their heads over water. And finally, the wave crashed, finally ended 300 yards in and banged him into the wall of a building. And the force of the bang threw open his arms, and his child fell into the water and drowned. And he lived. And I thought to myself, two people, I mean, two people died. His child died, and he died in that, day, in that moment. You know, that, that in any moment, our lives are so fragile to inflict pain on anyone. That first precept that we took in the beginning, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. In me has to include, I undertake the precept to abstain from even thinking ill will thoughts on human beings. I listened to uh, Barack Obama being interviewed on the radio at one point yesterday, and he was so good-tempered, he said, let's not wish that this administration fails. You know? Let's not wish that we can say, I told you so, because let's not wish for anything but an end to the suffering and the pain and the war. I, so I think there are two things that I, uh, here, we, here we come to New Year's resolutions. I'm going to tell you mine. I want you to think of yours. 
I am resolved that that line of may I be free from enmity and danger is going to continue to be the centerpiece of my practice. I do not want to have enmity. I am in danger when enmity is present in me. I am in danger of losing my good heart. I want to wish that all beings be well enough to realize that we are kin and take care of each other. I want to be part of that force that invites the world into kinship through love, not frightens them into it or forces them into it or beats them up into it. It won't work that way. Hatred is never ended by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. That's the beginning of the Dhammapada. So I need to be in charge of my own heart. Uh, you know that feeling of when things go bad and you think, ah, serves them right. I have to watch that feeling in me. It comes up in me. But I, I don't want to give it too much air time. You know? <laughs> you know, may all beings be peaceful and happy. I really want to habituate my heart to kindness. I'm sure we all do. I also want to do something more in the world. I was saying last year, this, that last year was the most politically active year I'd been in years and years. Um, so I have to figure out something to do. Uh, that was another part of my conversation with Jack. I, w I told him that last night. He's telling me about uh, some, uh, some woman whose name I've forgotten. Now that I'm thinking about it, he said some older woman said, oh. anyway, older woman uh, who um, spoke out so vigorously uh, about her political views that she got arrested a few times and in jail. And, uh, but, and uh, the more she got arrested, you know, if you arrest um, law-abiding old women, they eventually get to talk to newspapers and radios. It's a good way to do it, you know. <laughs> Uh, you get to make your point. So, and she said, "I have nothing to lose." So I said to Jack, "I have nothing to lose." You know, I, and he said, "Well, she established an organization called Grandmothers for Peace." Mm -hmm. I said, "Oh well, I've been wanting to do that. My friend Rachel has wanted so Let's get together." Well, you know, how many people here are grandmothers, grandfathers? Mm -hmm. Well, there we go. We can, we could have a chapter of grandmother and grandfathers for peace. <laughs> I actually am, um, I, I'm going to look that up on the internet. That may be my first thing that I join in 2005. But I have to be out, I, you know, what else? At this point, my inner heart has to stay clean and my outer body, whatever power or strength is left in it, has to do something. Frank said, is it Frank? He said, why don't we collect some money and give it to something as a gift this morning in honor, in memoriam, in appreciation for what's going on. I said, I had thought of that. I don't know what to do. I actually, I, I thought about it and thought about it. And then I went and got a pile of those joint spirit rock and support it monthly which isn't exactly a relief organization, except it actually is the organization that, that uh, is, is really doing the first part of mine, working on a heart of peace. So if it's the end of the year and you'd like to make a donation or sign up, those are the envelopes to do it. And a lot of people have now $10 a month, $20 a month, out of your Visa card, out of your MasterCard, automatically into Spirit Rock. If there are 100 people here and you each did $10 a month, that would be $1,000 a month. That would be $12,000 a year for Spirit Rock that would fund all our scholarships. We could be doing a great thing. So if you have not done that, you might do that for yourself and for us. That would be a great thing. The other thing I thought is I put some money in this bucket, and I was going to send it around so that we could have this as an offering to some relief organization. I didn't know which one, though. What do you want it to go to? I'll send it from Spirit Rock Wednesday morning community. Oxfam Care, Doctors Without Borders. Mazon, which one? Mazon is the Jewish agency that goes with Oxfam. What? There's also on the Spirit Rock website. 
website, there's a link to some of the ones that through this organization BPF is, uh, has got links too to the relief organization. How about we put this here, and if you like, we'll make a prayer. We'll ring the bell. On your way out, put something in here. I'll save it till next week. I'll be here next week. Tony will be here. We, you think about where you want us to send it. And, um, yeah. Well, should we make a check, a check to Spirit Rock or to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was driving in today, I turned off Abigail, um, the radio to yield to the present time. But it was a beautiful, on KPFA, a beautiful um, story about, I think, 19 women activists who've been imprisoned in a prison in Indonesia um, just for speaking out who everyone thought was dead, and it turns out that they're not, so that almost everyone else is. But they have started this operation right there in Indonesia, um, through which you can send money. I was only half listening because it was time for me to yield to the present. There was definitely a website, and there was definitely a contact by which we could send it directly to, okay. this, to these women. What is good and what is bad for I'll be glad to look that up. Why don't we make the decision in two weeks? But this morning, part of a... Oh, I do, let's do this. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. It's the end of the year. Come in a circle. Come in a circle. Look at each other. Look at yourself. Talc, I'm happy to see you. Your wife was here last time. She said, you know me, my, <laughs> because my husband is Tal. <laughs> I'm going to put this right in the middle. Whoops. <laughs> we'll do something with it in two weeks. Uh, who to make it out to? Um, make it out to cash. That's a good idea. And then we'll put it in an envelope. Uh, and uh, we, because Spirit Rock can't make a donation because it's a non-profit. I don't think it can. No, Sandra can't, huh? In our staff meeting yesterday, Evan, our Evan Kavanaugh, our executive director, was trying to find a, a certified, as you might say, foundation, a non-profit organization that can give money directly to Sri Lanka because the, you know, the great leader there, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Niana Panaka. The Gandhi of, of Sri Lanka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, in two weeks, everyone will have done the homework. You will have done the homework. Um, Abigail will have done homework. In two weeks, it'll be uplifting, actually, to talk about organizations in the world. Whoever said Oxfam, be prepared to say what Oxfam does. Whoever says Doctors Without Borders, who are wonderful, be prepared to say something. We'll talk about good people in the world who are doing wonderful things. It's uplifting, just like we are good people in the world doing wonderful things. Let's make a birthday card for the world now. In the year of this calendar, 2005, which is not the birthday of the planet, but a birthday of the planet, a birthday that heralded the dawn of uh, peace, possibility of hope, possibility of forgiving one's enemies, of turning the other cheek, of cultivating a heart that loves no matter what and responds with compassion. So for this calendar, based on that particular vision of peace on earth, goodwill towards men and women, let's wish for women and men and animals and plants and for the earth itself so ailing. Poor Earth, a hard week. Let's wish for all the people involved in this situation directly, all those who know about it, all those who feel because they have fathers' and mothers' hearts, 
the pain of the fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and grandparents and children who have lost people they love, of men and women who've lost partners and friends, May all beings be consoled. May the fundamental heart of human beings that sustains through its own compassion sustain each being on this earth. I like it when we sign the card, each of us, with our whole name, as many of your names as you like. My name is Sylvia Boorstein. Paulette Lowry. Marty Garcia Cotter. Felicia Sands. Let's look at each other so that we each know that the look means have a very good new year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy birthday, New Year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.